Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. I know I may not sound like me, but it is me. Radio Islam family, it's good to be with you, fighting through a little bit of a cold or some type of a bug. But for those of you who are new to the show, Radio Islam, we are a live call-in talk radio program. We air every day right here at WCEV 1450 AM, and we stream live, reaching the world at www.wcev1450.com. If you haven't already done so, take a moment to follow or like us on social media at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at the same username on each of those platforms. That is at Radio Islam USA, at Radio Islam USA. If you'd like to call in uh, with a question or a comment, feel free to do so at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. And as always, you can get at us uh, at Radio Islam USA on Twitter and Facebook, uh, where we, are, we will happily respond to your uh, questions or comments. So a lot, of, a lot is going on uh, in the world, and we're going to just take a little, a little piece out of that and we're going to talk about one of the things that many people have been uh, hearing about uh, but may, not, may have questions about, and that is net neutrality. Uh, last week, last week, a uh, decision was made by the FCC to roll back an uh, Obama administration uh, policy uh, called net neutrality. And we're going to talk about what that means. And we have in studio with us today Gordon Demowski. Uh, he is a Chicago area writer, blogger, marketing consultant who helps organizations build stronger online and offline communities and engage their advocates. He's got a strong focus on technology and social change. Gordon started as a nonprofit program administrator and currently works as a freelance consultant slash writer. His past efforts since moving back to Chicago include raising over $12,000 for the Northern Illinois Food Bank as an auction director for Chicago uh, TARDIS, yes, thank you, working with Chicago Red Cross, organizing for NetSquare Chicago, and serving on the board of Chicago Nerd Social Club. As a writer, Gordon has had several short stories published in various anthologies and has blogged for Chicago Now, One Cause at a Time, I'll tell you again, One Cause at a Time, focuses on efforts to use technology to drive social change in the city. For an overview of his professional efforts and activities, please visit his website at GordonDemowski.com or you can email it at Gordon at GordonDemowski.com Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you. It's really good to be here. Yes. Uh, and we always give our greetings, uh, the guests, the greetings of peace. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be with you. Thank you. And as a Catholic, I can say, and also with you. Alright. Good stuff. Good stuff. So yeah, so let's jump right into this net neutrality. Um, can we start with uh, explaining um, explaining what net neutrality is. Well, net neutrality uh, came from the Open Internet Order of 2015. And basically, the idea behind net neutrality is that all Internet service providers must treat data the same. They can't discriminate based on the content of the data, 
um, the website where the data comes from, the platform that operates on it, the application, nor they ca can they charge money for specific websites and online content. So, for example, Comcast got in trouble a few years ago because they found that certain sites they were throttling or slowing down the speed, and they got in trouble for that. So net neutrality means that whether you are uh, whether you're Fox News or your WCEV, your data is treated the same. Right. right. And so what the FCC essentially did was um, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, their chairman, Ajit Pai, and two, mem two Republican members, it's a five-person board, voted three to two to roll back some of those protections, which means that now companies could, in th internet providers could, in theory, say, well, um, the most popular metaphor is, okay, you've got one lane of internet access, of broadband access for consumers. But for businesses, you can opt into a faster level of broadband. Right. Now, this was a, a decision, as you said, this was a three to two decision mm -hmm. by the FCC. Uh, the FCC, many people, some people may not be aware of, is not an, uh, is not an elected position. Correct. It's, it's an appointed position. Right. And um, the chairperson, I forget who was the chair under Obama, but he rolled off, and Ajit Pai was um, uh, appointed by Trump. This is an appointed position. He, uh, but a few months ago, made a joke amongst, uh, he was giving a presentation where he joked that he was a puppet administrator for Verizon. Mm. which looking at what happened, and he had always been anti-net neutrality. And the idea against net neutrality is if you, um, you don't need to micromanage the Internet. If you, remove, if you remove the borders, you allow competition to move forward. The problem is, is that the problem with that idea is that now that the rules have been removed, most of the people who are against net neutrality are the service providers because obviously they have a vested interest in, um, you know, it, they could end they end up losing because they have to treat all data the same. They they can't, for example, uh, Portugal is a really good example, and Portugal does not have net neutrality. So service providers there can say, okay, if you want access to email, that's one package. If you want access to Facebook, Twitter, etc., you pay extra. And so um, there's an issue both in terms of additional payment for consumers, but there's also a free speech issue. Right. Well, let's talk about that. How is this a free, free speech issue? Um, with net neutrality, since you didn't discriminate, that meant that certain that, – that everyone had a voice. So you could have mainstream voices and non-mainstream voices you could have a diversity of opinion. Without net neutrality, a uh, service provider could say, for example, well, we're going to allow um, Fox News access, but because uh, we can, they can decide to charge a certain fee for access to, for streaming video, streaming audio. For a show, say, like Radio Islam, that might not be, a, that might not be affordable. So they go, okay, well, we're going to give you a lesser package where, okay, the quality is not going to be that good. Or they're going to say, you know what, you can't pay, you don't play. 
And that's where it becomes a free speech issue. It becomes um, a variation of the golden rule. They who have the gold make the rules. Net neutrality allowed for any voices to be heard. You know what? Um, there have been several polls that have been done on the majority of Americans, uh, their feelings on net neutrality, uh, and it's over 80 percent. 83 percent. Now, for them to make this type of, uh, to roll back net neutrality, uh, it, it speaks to a, a different agenda. Yes. Um, but I would, I would like for you, uh, in light of that, I would like to hear your thoughts on how is this going to affect, um, is, or is this going to affect all income levels the same? Yes, it, it will affect various income levels. Um, since net neutrality, since last week, one thing the FCC has done is that they've rolled back protections on uh, low-cost Internet access for low-income residents. So AT&T has a, had a, has a program called Access, where if, you're on, if you receive SNAP benefits, you can get Internet access for about $5, $10 a month, mm-hmm. a really small price. Comcast had also announced a similar program a few months ago. Thanks to net neutrality, those have already the FCC has already rolled back on some of those protections and some of that funding. The other that just happened in the last few days is that the FCC just removed, they just ended an 80-year-old rule that said that large broadcasters don't need are not required to have local affiliates. So you could say, for example, um, NBC, which is owned by Comcast, could decide to close down. Um, WMAQ here in the city, which means that for consumers, they would only get one source of news rather than local committed source of news. For um, if we're talking about internet access, um, large larger companies would be able to afford better access. Again, going back to the the, the metaphor of consumers get one level, businesses get another level. Well, let me ask this, um, especially in light of the, the, the rule that was uh, rolled back as far as not having to have local affiliates, does this put us on the pathway to resembling uh, the news that we look at uh, in places like uh, Russia or North Korea, uh, places where it is state-run, um, but we, we swap out the state with the corporation? Yes. And yeah, um, given the current tenor of the um, the administration, which is certain companies provide fake news, it's being slanted towards a particular conglomeration of corporations. So it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of, um, in my opinion, mm. uh, as much state-run, but the state has made it clear that they have certain corporate interests at heart. Right. So you mentioned some of the some of the benefits uh, of net neutrality for low income mm-hmm. Americans. Uh, so it would be safe to say that they would be they would be the first or hardest hit by this um, by this lack of net neutrality. Yes, um, but we're all affected by by the by net neutrality. Sure, the internet um, has become as much a part of our social infrastructure our civic infrastructure, our business infrastructure, as, you know, roads and bridges and kind of the larger 
and streets. It's it's become a it's become almost a must have in this. Um, what net neutrality did was it made sure that it was protected. It's um, net neutrality being uh, rescinded is equivalent to what happened in Flint, Michigan, with water. You know they decided to use poor materials to fil- they filtered their water through. Diff- we know what the end result was was that Flint still does not have decent drinking water. Um, what net neutrality did was it essentially, to use a really bad metaphor, poisoned the Internet. Because what's happening is it's taking away access from people who legitimately use it and giving it to the hands of a few. It's becoming another resource. It's becoming um, a have or a have. It's becoming a have or a have not issue. Folks, if you are just tuning in, uh, we are talking with Gordon Domowski. Uh, he's a Chicago area writer, blogger, consultant, um, and I thought this was pretty interesting. The uh, serves on the board of the Chicago Nerd Social Club. I used to be a board member of the Chicago. Um, I left about two years ago, but I, I was a. Um, the Chicago Nerd Social Club is a. It's um, it's a group of people with nerdy interests. So everything from Star Trek to Doctor Who to. Um, we do a couple of. Um, they have a book, a science fiction book club. They work towards inclusive spaces for geeky, nerdy people. So, all right, hmm. that's 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 a good crowd for me, actually. <laughs> you, you know what? I can introduce you. Just say the word. All right, all right. I'd appreciate that, uh, folks. If you have a question or comment for Gordon, uh, anything that you'd like to uh, add to the conversation, feel free to call us at three one two seven five zero one one seven eight. That's three one two seven five zero one one seven eight. Yeah, so, uh, Salaam Alaikum, everybody. Ibrahim. Yeah, on that notion of uh, the nerd club, right, I guess that ties into why the internet kind of uh, exploded in popularity, was there was this free place, right, where everyone is supposed to, everyone is free to find their own niche, kind of, if you're into this subject or that subject or these kind of movies or whatever, and that was kind of part of the identity of the internet, which made it boom in such a spectacular way so and that spirit i think was um kind of signified in the 2015 resolution too of the fcc where affirming net neutrality so you see that creative environment that free speech environment where anyone's able to find their niche and say whatever they want do you see that really in jeopardy now too yes when you look at the fact that um just in in terms of social media you've got people who are building businesses on the digital infrastructure. Um, my, my day job is I work in online marketing. So I help with social media strategy. I help with SEO copywriting. But you also have a lot of um, creative people on the Internet. So another one of my um, associates from Chicago Nerd Social Club uh, is a singer-songwriter named Don Giannimo, who... Um, she runs a dance troupe called Rocks Geek, which is nerdy belly dance and fire spinning. But she's also done some work um, in terms of uh, relief for Puerto Rico. In fact, she even has a, uh, a benefit album out with various Chicago bands at artistsagainsthate.bandcamp.com. And one of the implications is, is because this is a smaller effort on a small um, band camp, which is for, specifically for musicians... There is the opportunity to do something that wasn't there before. 
you know, these are all people who, who these are all musicians who work locally. And the internet allows them to develop an audience for without necessarily having to, um, in a very immediate way. You remove net neutrality. Well, um, Bandcamp as a site might be downgraded. Yeah. A lot of these musicians, if they're if they have to, um, if they have to earn a living, don't have the ability to access. They won't have the ability to access. And if you've got a few companies deciding who has, you know, who gets access, it's it would be Taylor Swift, for example, versus uh, a, a lo- relatively local person. So I think without net neutrality, you don't have people starting businesses. You don't have people being able to put out their work. Um, I am what I am a new pulp writer. There are a a lot of people, um, people like Derek Ferguson, Kimberly Richardson, Adam Lance Garcia, uh, Tommy Hancock, who write kind of action adventure like back in the 30s, only with a, with a modern twist. Um, a lot of us um, use the internet to sell our work. Right. Um, two of my publishers, Airship 27 Productions and Pro Se Productions, use um, online tools, not just to actually create the books. You know, they they distribute via Amazon, Kindle. You take the internet away. Not only will writers have a hard time selling their work, but actual businesses will be impacted. That's why net neutrality is so important because it assures that it. It's kind of like um, if there's a major street. So we look at um, if. Here in Chicago, if the Dan Ryan or the Stevenson became a tollway all of a sudden, travel would be impacted. Mm-hmm. And you'd also have um, you, you'd have a lot of people who rely on, um, if you're driving from, say, Chicago to St. Louis, and you have to pay a toll, a lot of businesses wouldn't be able to do it. They'd have to figure out another way to do it. This makes me think about the impact on nonprofit. Uh, that, first of all, Ibrahim, that was a great question, um, and it made me think about the impact on nonprofits, uh, crowdfunding, fundraising mm-hmm. online, uh, having that access restricted. That could be a major. Uh, that could be a major blow. In addition to, uh, you mentioned uh, entertainers, uh, musicians, and artists. Uh, that that's. This is huge. Yeah, that's that's why this is um, this is such an important issue because it's not just um, you know you talked about back in the '90s. Back in the '90s, internet access might have been a cool thing to have. Now it's it's almost it's necessary. Yeah. Um, I've been in argue I've been in heated conversations with people who've who've said things like, "Well, why do we still need libraries? Everything's online." Well. Libraries serve. Libraries are community hubs. Uh, libraries also provide internet access for people who, who don't have it. Here in Chicago, we have the Internet to Go program at our library, where you can check out a hotspot. Um, libraries also serve as central information hubs. And so the idea that it's the irony that yes, you need, you wish you had a place where you can get all this information, but if the roads blocked off. And you have, you're you're basically doing a disservice. And net neutrality is basically telling people, you 
the right the the information that you desire you cannot have access to and it's basically turning it into you get to have it you don't and we're turning that decision over to a small number of companies Mm -hmm. i think it speaks volumes that um various websites like dropbox github and online providers have said this is a bad idea because they see it as part of their business model is depending on a free and open internet and what's beautiful about net neutrality is that if i go to the library and i go work out of say um uh, say like a mcdonald's with wi-fi i can get the same amount of information without net neutrality the library i might get a different set of information and access to sites than I would at McDonald's because McDonald's usually depends on either AT&T or Google, whereas the library, um, I think they have their own internal network. I, I don't know. I don't work for the library. But it's, it's the idea that people should have equal access to information and people should have equal access to be able to put their ideas, thoughts and ideas out there. So it's not just an issue of corporate interests and a financial issue, uh, and it's not just an issue of free speech. It's actually all of the above, including providing basic utilities to people who it's very difficult to live a regular life in the United States without Internet access, period. So it's actually all of the above. Right. 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 And um, it is an all-the-above issue. And I'm sure there's someone listening who's thinking, well, what about cell phones? Well, one of the biggest opponents of net neutrality is Verizon. And Verizon happens to, I, I'm a Verizon customer. Um, net neutrality, a lot more, I don't know the exact number, but a lot more people are relying on their smartphones for and mobile devices for access. So yes, net neutrality affects you if you are a mobile user as much as if you're opening a desktop or a laptop and accessing the internet. You know, yeah, and I think about that as a as a user who uses my hotspot on my phone to to work while I'm on the train. Mm-hmm. I pull out my laptop, and you know that's an hour of work, and the possibility of of having that slowed down or having that taken away from me. I mean, I see I see plenty of people on the train doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that is, and I guess we can see uh, how this issue even crosses over into being a, a religious issue for us as Muslims because in Islam um, it's forbidden for someone like if you have a well where people gather water it's forbidden yes. to block off that well right. it's forbidden to charge this person more for water or something that they wish actually need to function right. than it is for someone else and basic utilities electricity and so on by the same token by, this, by that extension it also applies to that so now we're seeing that internet access not just here in the United States, I think even all over the world in developing countries too. Um, it's growing still, but it's becoming to the point where people need internet access to go about their daily lives. Therefore, it becomes forbidden to favor some people over others just based on their economic level or their corporate interests or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, I think in I, that way. Yeah, I think a couple of years ago, I forget the organization who promoted it, but there's the idea going around that basically the idea that internet access and digital access is a basic human right which i I am which i know a lot of my peers agree with and i agree with because it's become such a part of our infrastructure and it's also allowed 
it's allowed us as a as a it, various countries to interact with each other. Um, you know, I would not be here if it weren't for the internet. I mean, Tariq actually sent me a note saying, "Would you like to be on the show?" Um, we connected, and I, that's the and I think that's the power of. That's the power, not only the power of the internet, but why net neutrality is so important. It's a way to bring people together and a way to break down some of those barriers between uh, cultures and nations, which, unfortunately, in you know, in our current political climate, seems to be not welcome. Right. Well, Radio Slam family, we're going to close out this first section, uh, first segment of, of our show tonight. I would thank Gordon for coming in and shedding some light on this uh, very important conversation and we're going to keep our eyes on it so we i'm sure we're going to be talking about it again um if you could quickly tell folks where they can follow you uh on social media okay well if you want to follow me on twitter my uh, twitter is at g-o-r-d-o-n-d-y-m uh if you want to check out my facebook author page it's facebook.com slash gordon r Demowski. And I'm on Instagram at gordon.demowski. Okay. Thanks so, thanks so much. All right. Now, next, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Miko Pellet. Uh, he's an Israeli writer and human rights activist. And uh, we've got a great discussion coming up ahead. You're listening to Radio Islam at WCV 1450 AM. getting around, I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Would your business survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency, and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. Assalamu alaikum. Sound Vision is starting a new initiative to provide crisis intervention to those in need. Through the crisis text line, anyone can text 741-741 and be connected via text to a trained crisis counselor who is there to listen and show empathy. The crisis text line is open to everyone. By texting the keyword SALAM, that's S-A-L-A-M, to 741-741, users will be connected to a trained Muslim counselor whenever available. You can also volunteer to undergo training and become a counselor. For more information, visit soundvision.com. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. You are listening to Radio Islam at WCV 1450 AM. We are streaming live at www.wcv1450.com. And I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. Uh, yes, the voice is sounding a little rough. Uh, fighting off a bug, so keep me in your prayers. 
Uh, oh, yeah, real quick. I got to give a quick shout out to Sugar Bliss. Uh, thanks for for keeping us uh, exercising because your food is so good that uh, we must exercise afterwards. Um, no, they're, they're great folks. All right, folks, uh, Radio Sound family, we're going to be talking uh, with Miko Pellet. Uh, he is an Israeli writer and human rights activist living in the U.S. He was born and raised in Jerusalem. Uh, he's considered by many to be one of the clearest voices calling for justice in Palestine, uh, boycott, divestment, and sh- sanctions uh, known by the uh, uh, by BD- BDS, uh, and the creation of a single democracy with equal rights on all of historic Palestine. Uh, Pellet has just completed a second book, uh, Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. The book describes the persecution and then the closure of what was America's largest Muslim charity organization, the Holy Land Foundation, and the subsequent trials and convictions of five Palestinian Muslim Americans. Uh, Pulitzer Prize journalist Chris Hedges wrote, Miko Pellet shines a light on one of the most egregious cases of injustice committed to date against Muslim leaders in the United States. Um, Miko, do we have you online? Yes, you do. I'm right here. Thanks. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. So, you know, I actually, I gave you all, and I should tell you right now, you can go to his website uh, to see uh, a bit more of his bio. I really gave you a really truncated version. Uh, and there's a lot more with regard to his first book, but I wanted to just get right into talking about this book and to talking about, uh, to talking about why you do uh, what you do. So um, if you would give everybody your website real quick, that would be great. Mikopelled.com. Uh, very simple. My name, M-I-K-O-P-E-L-E-D.com. Okay. Uh, best place. Uh, people can follow me on Facebook, too. Uh, a lot of my stuff is on Facebook, on my page as well. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so what, what, prompted, what prompted this book? Well, what prompted the book was uh, a story that I heard. I was, uh, I was um, actually speaking about uh, my first book, The General Sun. It had just come out. It was about 2012, late 2012. Uh-huh. And I was in Dallas speaking. And after my talk, a couple of the student activists came up to me. And um, two of them were daughters of uh, the Holy Land Foundation Five. Uh-huh. And they told me the story uh, about the, the Holy Land Foundation, about their, their fathers, about what happened. Um, and, um, and that prompted the whole thing. And then I began investigating some more. Another activist from Dallas, um, a friend of mine, you know, started sending me information. This was right after their uh, appeal was denied. And so there was a lot of information out there. Um, and I decided after meeting the families uh, several months later um, that this was something that I, uh, I should write a book about. I had no idea how to do it because the story is so complex. Uh, it has so many different layers um, and so many difficult issues to, to, to deal with. You know, where to start? Why did they? Why were they targeted? Was it true? Was it not true? Are they innocent? You know, was the, was, is the U.S. government um, right in convicting them or not? I had to meet with the, their, I met with their lawyers. I met with the families. I met them in prison, all but one. I met in prison um, several times. I. Um, I met people who worked with the Holy Land Foundation in Palestine over the years. Of course, you know, this is going back a long time ago, so it was hard to get people to talk. It was hard to get people to remember. It was hard to get people to want to remember because this was such a painful uh, process, not only for the Arab and Muslim community here in the U.S., but also for Palestinians in, in uh, Palestine because Holy Land did so much important work. Right. and gave so much to Palestinians, and so many people relied on them and worked with them that... Um, 
when they were taken down, it was it was a real trauma. Um, so that's what prompted it. I mean, just the need to tell this incredible story. And um, I began at that moment, you know, in 2012. I mean, that's when the seed was planted. And the the book is coming out. Um, uh, the the future launch date is February 6. So it's, uh, it took, took many years. It took a long time to really put the thing, put the the entire story together into a coherent narrative that people can understand all the different aspects and why this is such an egregious injustice. Right, right. Now you mentioned your first book, uh, The General Son, and uh, which received uh, tremendous uh, responses from. Uh, the likes of Alice Walker, Ralph Nader, Seymour Hirsch, Naomi Wolf, and Jim Miles. Um, would you tell the Radio Slam family a little bit, give them a little bit of, of your background, exactly who uh, Miko Pellet is? So The General Son uh, is uh, the first book that I wrote. Um, the full title is The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. Mm-hmm. So I am an Israeli, and growing up as an Israeli, you don't know that there is a Palestine. Um, and as the title of my book suggests, my father was a general uh, in the Israeli army. I come from a very patriotic Zionist family. My grandparents, some of my grandparents and my uncles and aunts were involved in high level of the Zionist movement and the establishment of the state of Israel and important posts within the state of Israel. Um, so that was me growing up. Um, and then the journey that I took was as an Israeli growing up and thinking that I live in a country called Israel, and I'm part of this unique group um, of people who are Jewish and returned to their land after 2,000 years in what I believed was really a miracle. Uh, and I embarked on a, on, on a journey, which is not very long because it's a small country and Palestinians are only a few minutes away from Israeli communities, Jewish communities, regardless of where you are in the country. And I realized that the sphere and the environment in which I grew up was completely, completely different, entirely different. Everything from the amounts of water that we get to the laws under which we live, completely, entirely different that between the we, what I grew up with and what Palestinians um, experience when they, where they live. And again, it's only minutes away. You're always, almost always across the street from a Palestinian uh, neighborhood, a Palestinian community. Right. And that drove me deeper and deeper into Palestine, into this whole question of what is Palestine, what is Israel, what does it mean to be an Israeli? Uh, the conclusion that I reached is that the whole idea of Israel has no legitimacy because it's a settler colonial project. It's founded on racism. It's founded on the idea that one people have more rights or should have more rights than other people, that it's okay to take somebody's land because you may have a claim that goes back 3,000 years, which is, you know, absurd. Um, and so today I'm in a place where even though I have this background, I refer to the country as Palestine because I believe that's the legitimate name and that's the legitimate identity of the country. And people like myself, I see as the whites in South Africa. You know, they're part of the country because they were born there and that's, there are whites in South Africa. They don't, they're not organically from there, but they were brought in. They're the descendants of settlers and racists, but now they're there, and I think Israeli Jews like myself as the same thing. We're part of the landscape now, and um, I believe our job is, our duty, and when I say our, I mean all people of conscience, Mm -hmm. is to make way for Palestine to become a real democracy with equal rights. So we don't have this, uh, the reality that exists there today. And as I'm speaking to you today, two good friends of mine have their children arrested. You know, 16 and 17 year olds um, 
arrested by the by his by Israeli forces. The homes raided. Uh, one is a boy, one is a girl, um, and they've been um, you know arrested because their fathers are prominent uh, human rights defenders and activists in Palestine. So the, the reality is there is very very severe. It's become more severe since Trump's declaration on Jerusalem, which yes. I think was 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 to be expected. Um, and uh, I believe that we all need to fight as hard as we can to bring about a real democracy with equal rights and end this um, this brutality and this persecution of Palestinians. And the interesting thing is that the second book, Injustice, is all about the persecution of Palestinians, although in a different context, but still the persecution of Palestinians in this new country that they came to um, because they were forced out of Palestine or their, their, their parents and grandparents were forced out of Palestine. And why does this persecution continue here? Why is there Islamophobia here? Why is there this deep anti-Arab sentiment in America? So one book kind of follows the footsteps of the other, just expands the story a little bit. Mm. So the close, well, not the close, but the disruption of the Holy Land Foundation, uh, was that a, do you, do you point to that as a, a critical uh, destabilizing uh, event for Palestinians? Well, I think it was, um, from what I've learned, from what I've seen, having spoken to many, many people in the Arab and Muslim community here in the United States, um, it was it was a shock. It was a terrible trauma. I mean, these um, this was the largest Muslim charity in America. It was highly respected, highly trusted, it received accolades from everybody, international organizations, national organizations, local organizations, because they did a lot of work within the U.S. as well. Whenever there was, um, you know, if there were floods or, or, or earthquakes or the Oklahoma City bombing, I mean, they were always there to help. And, of course, internationally and with Palestine, and their impact was, was very powerful. People trusted them. Mm-hmm. And although... The taking down of the Holy Land Foundation came about at, right after 9/11, because they were an easy target. They were the obvious, uh, an obvious target. The, the really the they began to undermine their credibility in the early 1990s. It was in the early 1990s that their credibility was being undermined. Um, I believe as a result of work mostly by the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. Um, and uh, the FBI began investigating them. The IRS began looking into revoking their not-for-profit status. Their offices in Jerusalem were being raided. Their offices in other parts of Palestine were being raided by the Israelis. Uh, they were shut down by the Israelis, and this is throughout the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then 9-11 gave, almost gave the, um, the okay for the U.S. government to act and it was December of, of 2000, you know, right after 9-11, um, that George Bush closed them down with a, an executive order, and nobody thought it was going to be anything serious. People thought, well, you know, it was obviously a mistake. Why? Because all of their work was above board. Mm-hmm. All of their paperwork, all of their accounting, everybody knew exactly every penny where it went, and nothing went to terrorism. But the charge was that they were was material support for terrorist organization, material support for Hamas. And there was no evidence at all, not even the slightest evidence, that any of their money was going to Hamas. Uh, quite the opposite. In other words, every penny was accounted for and could be followed all the way to Palestine and to the exact, exactly the place where it went. Um, 
so nobody thought. So there was a civil suit, and everybody thought they were going to win. And and suddenly the civil suit comes and goes, and and the government and the and and the judge does not accept their evidence, and they mm. cannot enter their evidence, and it doesn't make any sense. Why would they not allow them to to enter enter evidence? All the evidence that they had that proves that they were doing everything right. And from that point on, you know, several years later, there's a criminal trial, and then. Hung jury, another criminal trial, and they're all found, and they're all convicted, and now they're all in, in federal prison. Um, so it was a slippery slope, but it was obvious that it was more than just the government trying to round up, you know, the usual suspects and to see if everything was really okay. It was a targeted operation to bring them down because they represented um, so many good things, and so and 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 whoever it was, the ADL or the government of Israel. And pro-Israeli groups did not want to have a positive, um, you know, well-respected Muslim-Palestinian organization thriving in the United States. Can you tell the Radio Islam family some of the things that the, um, excuse me, that the Holy Land Foundation was responsible for? Well, uh, the list goes on and on and on. They were, like I said, right after 9/11, they were there. Floods. Um, uh, earthquakes around the world. They were there. They contributed in Albania to refugees. Um, they were in Turkey. They were in Chechnya. They were, of course, in Palestine. They had massive programs for orphans. They had they built um, schools. They had built libraries. They um, supported the families of prisoners. And of course, in Palestine, both the issue of uh, prisoners and the issue of orphans is severe because of the violence Palestinians have been targeted, and, and there are so many families that have uh, their, their breadwinners in prison um, because there's so many political Palestinian political prisoners held by the Israelis. Um, in Gaza, they were, when they closed down, the UN, a UN report demonstrated clearly how uh, the needy, you know, the, the, there was a need that they, were, that they were fulfilling, that suddenly there was a big gap. Um, and there was a big problem there because so many poor people in refugee camps and so forth uh, were not receiving the aid, were not receiving the food, were not receiving um, the, the the clothing and the school supplies and so on and so forth, the, the medical supplies that, that the Holy Land was, was uh, providing. Um, so the list goes on and on and on. And, and, and um, one of the things that was done in the, the, the prosecution was trying to show is that by helping orphans, they were supporting terrorism, that they were encouraging terrorism. Mm. And in the trial, they had a terrorism expert, Matthew Levitt, who was in D.C., actually explaining how by supporting the orphans, they were encouraging fathers to go out and commit acts of terrorism, particularly suicide attacks. And the defense showed the list of orphans, and none of them became orphans because their fathers had anything to do with terrorism, you know, I mean, they showed clearly because they could see each and every child, what happened, the cause of death of the father, how much money they received, and so on. They had detailed accounts of everything. Um, but it didn't matter how hard the defense worked. It just, they were not able to, uh, I mean, they were able to, to create doubt enough in the first jury, in the first trial, in the second trial, they were all convicted. So they did a lot of good all over the world, here in the U.S., um, and, and particularly, of course, in, in Palestine. Hmm. So you mentioned um, you mentioned that during that first trial that they had evidence that they were not allow, allowed to present. Has, has right. that something that has been looked into? Uh, uh, 
is or or was that something that just kind of happened and people just moved on well, past it? It it it. I mean, all they they, they went to it. They appealed all of this, um, and so with the law, with the, the initial with the civil trial in the very beginning, um, they went to the appellate court, and the and the appellate court said, "Yes, you're right. This is wrong. The judge should have allowed them to uh, present their evidence." However, this was not a normal case. They said, "If this was a normal case, then yes, this was this would have been counted." Uh, as something uh, to look into. But because this was an issue of national security, the appellate court upheld the ruling of the judge. This happened with the criminal case as well. Really? Um, they, uh, the, 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 the prosecution were allowed, you know, were, were, given, were given an allowance to demonstrate and show things that had nothing to do with the trial. Terrorism, suicide bombing, 9-11, all kinds of things that had absolutely nothing to do nothing to do with the work of Hoyland Foundation. Um, the vast majority, they, they were, their phones were tapped for, for more than a decade. Mm. Um, but they were not given access to the transcripts because all of the transcripts became classified and the government only declassified parts of the transcripts which they decided to declassify. So the defendants didn't even have access to all of the information that was presented against them. Then the prosecution brought two anonymous Israeli intelligence officers. This is the first time in the history of the United States that anonymous uh, foreign agents were allowed to come and testify as expert witnesses um, and remain anonymous. And so really they could not confront their accusers. So all of this came up in the appellate court, in the appeal, because, of course, after they were convicted, they went to appeal. And the appellate court said, you know, that's right, these were mistakes. This should not have happened. However, they said this was harmless. Hmm. But it wasn't harmless because the first trial was a mistrial. The second trial, they were all convicted. So it was not harmless. But for some reason, because this was, you know, under the category of terrorism and because the um, the entire country really, after 9-11, that was, was been existing in a state of hysteria, um, they couldn't get a fair trial. And the lawyers, one after the other, said this to me. And these were serious veterans of, 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 of the law. These were serious, serious. They had a really good team of lawyers. And they, they all said they were, there was not a chance in the world that these five good men, whose names I haven't said yet, I'd, I'd like to mention their names, Please. five good men could get uh, a fair trial in, in, in a court of law in the United States, particularly not in the Northern District of Texas. Um, now, their names are, and I'm sure many of the listeners have heard the names and know them, um, Shukri Abu Bakr and Hassan Elashi, each one of them received 65 years in federal prison. And Mufid Abdul Qadir, who received 20 years in federal prison. Uh, Abdurrahman Oudeh from New Jersey, from Patterson, received 15. And Muhammad Al Mazain, Abu Ibrahim Al Mazain, who received also 15 years uh, in federal prison. And I visited all but one, all but Hassan Elashi. For some reason, the prison authorities will not allow me to visit him. I visited all the other ones. Um, what's incredible is their faith. What's incredible is how deep their faith is. They realize that they're political prisoners. They realize that this is a, this is a terrible injustice. Mm-hmm. But uh, they are devoutly, devoutly Muslim. They take their religion uh, and the challenges that their life has presented them um, as, as you know, a decree from, from God and something that they are going to have to deal with. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they teach, they pray, they they do everything that good men will do in these environment, in this environment. But not just good men. Good men with an incredibly strong spirit. And every time I visit them, or or speak to them, or or communicate with them by email, I'm just amazed at the power of their, uh, the strength of their of their spirit and their faith, and how they they take this incredible injustice. I mean. For anybody to be in prison, you can imagine, is horrible. Right. Even if you're guilty, to be in prison is horrible. Mm-hmm. But to be innocent, completely innocent, not only innocent, but these are good men, good family men. These are men who did everything they could, everything they could do to help others, and they were targeted in such a vicious way. And to still maintain your spirit and maintain your optimism um, is very is 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 really quite remarkable. So there's a very very sad personal story here as well, which I touch on in the book because I think people need to appreciate the personal story. And then there's a story of the community that was brought down, and then there's a story of Israel-U.S. relations, which have everything to do, I believe, which are really behind the taking down of the Holy Land Foundation. So there's all these different levels. Now you mentioned, um, you said that you're as, you're an Israeli who. Yes. refers to uh, Israel as Palestine yes. and also pointing out the, well, what some refer to uh, as a modern-day apartheid. Yes. Um, and that that the only, or that a solution, or the solution that you see is a, is really is a one-state solution, yes. a democratic state. Yes. Now, do, yes. you, do you feel like, and I'm asking this without looking at the, the media um, media coverage or the voices that we hear on the media that don't really push this uh, as an, as a viable uh, idea, uh, a one-state solution. Do you feel like, aside from what the media uh, portrays, that that there are more uh, Israelis in uh, in Palestine that would agree with that? They would agree with me? Absolutely yes. not. <laughs> but you know, privileged societies rarely are willing to give up their privilege uh, willingly. Right. They have to be forced to do so. You know, the whites in South Africa didn't decide one day they were going to give up apartheid. They were forced to do so as a result of uh, international pressure, isolation, boycott, divestment, and sanctions that was apply, apply, applied uh, on South Africa. And basically, apartheid was on its knees. It had nowhere to go, and there was no choice. And so they called for free and fair elections, released Nelson Mandela and the other freedom fighters from prison. And that was the end of apartheid. And I see the same process taking place with Palestine. The boycott, divestment, and sanctions, or like the BDS movement, which you mentioned earlier, is, is, is getting stronger and is very, very effective. Um, I think that the violence that we see, that we've seen over the, the past, you know, seven decades, but really over the past maybe 20 years, the increasingly increasing violence, and particularly now after Trump's declaration on Jerusalem, and I'm talking about the violence that being uh, perpetrated against the Palestinians by the Israelis right. um, is, is, is bringing things to a head. And really, the entire country is one state. I mean, all of Palestine is one state. It's governed by the state of Israel, by the government of Israel. It's just that I get to live under kind of democratic liberal laws because I'm an Israeli Jew. Mm-hmm. Palestinians live under entirely different laws. They do not have the same, the same rights, and they're not, we're not equal under the law over there. Right. Um, that needs to be changed. Uh, the, the the struggle is to bring about full equality uh, and uh, and uh, and and uh, compensation for the seven decades of suffering and the return of the refugees. 
I believe that is the the way forward. And I think, it, I mean, people think it's it's not realistic, but you know, what is realistic? We make things realistic or not realistic. Right. I don't think uh, this violent uh, regime is sustainable. I don't think what Israel is doing is sustainable. And it's immorally repugnant as well, but it's also not sustainable. You know, there, there seems to be a history, uh, at least within the past 60 years or so, um, of the economic impact or the weight of, of money on, on social change. You know, looking back at the Montgomery bus, uh, bus boycott, uh, exactly. to apartheid um, in South Africa, <clears throat> and now uh, BDS been employed as a, a strategy for social change and equality yeah. uh, in Israel. Um, and do you see a, a timeline, um, you know, in, in, in your mind as, as when when you think things would actually come come to bear? Well, I know that over the last five years there have been changes that nobody could have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Now, on the ground, life for Palestinians is becoming harder, and the violence perpetrated by Israel is becoming more pronounced and more brutal. At the same time, support for Israel on the grassroots popular level is, is, is waning, is becoming weaker. Mm-hmm. More and more people uh, around the world, both in the U.S. and in Europe and other parts of the world, are listening to the Palestinian voice and are calling for justice in Palestine and realizing really that the only way to achieve justice in Palestine is for Israel to make way for a real democracy. So uh, so if, if the trend continues, and I believe it not only will continue, I believe it will become stronger, I believe in the next five to ten years we're going to see major changes in that direction, um, if not entire, entire change and, and, and a real, and a real uh, free Palestine, which, which means which means a, a real democratic state with total freedom for Palestinians. I believe that is, I believe within the next five to ten years, that is almost inevitable. Okay. Well, Radio Islam family, we've been talking with Miko Pellet, uh, Israeli writer, human rights activist, uh, living in the U.S., and he's author of uh, two books, uh, The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and his most recent book, which is Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land, Foundation 5. Uh, the book describes the persecution and then the closure of what was America's largest Muslim charity organization, the Holy Land Foundation, and the subsequent trials and convictions of five Palestinian Muslim Americans. Um, if you'd like to uh, get more information about him, you can go to his website, which is mikopellet.com, uh, and you can get more information. Uh, can they purchase the books there as well? Um, not yet, because it's not actually out yet. Amazon is already selling it as a, as a pre-order. But I want to add that um, the official launch is going to be uh, January 6th. Okay. And if anybody wants, and we're putting together kind of a book tour right now, if any, any Muslim organizations, masajid, uh, community centers, if anybody wants to um, organize a talk, organize a book, a book talk and a book signing, uh, to just uh, go on my website, micopella.com. Uh, there's a form there, and they can um, ask for information about that because we're putting it together now. And I'd really believe that the Muslim community um, in the United States deserves to, you know, the first dibs at this because this is um, this is really their 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 story and and and, and their issue. Well, thank um, so you I'll be so much. Everywhere, but but if anybody's interested, then that's the place to go ahead and and, and contact contact me. Okay. Thank you so much, Miko. Uh, and we give you the salams. Assalamu alaikum. Um, and also, um, we're going to close out now. We're running up to a minute uh, before we're off. Uh, our engineer, WCEV, tonight has been Ramon. 
our uh, engineer, uh, assistant producer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Baig. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Executive producers, Abdul Malik Mujahid. The views expressed by the host um, and or uh, guests are theirs and not to be taken as the stances of Sound Vision. Uh, we will see you tomorrow, and we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.